family camp this year, uh, you can do that and have all the information. There is an early registration discount, so if you're looking for that, you would want to pick that up as soon as possible. All right, now as far as uh, prayer requests that I have received uh, earlier in the week, we have um, from Kitty Jenny. How many of you remember Kitty? Kitty uh, lived on Colebrook Road before she became a, not even a snowbird. She actually just plain out moved to Florida, okay? Uh, so she's living in Florida, uh, but watches online every Sunday. Uh, so thankful for the live stream ministry that we have now here at the church. She sent a prayer request and uh, wanted us to be praying for her as she has foot surgery coming up. Um, let me just give you the exact dates of that. Uh, it's a it's a hammer toe surgery that she's going to be having, so uh, she can't take any um, pain reliever, or and she doesn't do well with anesthesia. So that's her situation. Um, having foot surgery on March twenty fourth. I've had the surgery ten years ago on my left foot. It was very unpleasant. My right foot is now much worse. Uh, it will be hammer toe surgery on three toes combined with bunion surgery. I'm extremely uneasy about it. I don't do well with the anesthesia, and I really don't do well without being able to walk. I do not have narcotics for pain either. They make me nauseous, so I will need to tough out the pain with Tylenol and ibuprofen. Any prayer would be welcome. So I want to remember Kitty Jenny, um, Bobby Joe, uh, who's... Uh, Sometimes she's here, sometimes she's online. She's asked that we pray for her daughter who is going to have, um, possibly have some preventative surgery done. Bobby Joe is very concerned about that. Uh, and so if you would be praying for her, if you want more details, I'll give them to you later. I just don't want to do that on the, um, uh, on live uh, internet. So if you pray, if you're praying for Bobby Joe, pray for her daughter as well as she's uh, possibly facing some sur- surgery. Uh, anything else? Okay, so Jackie's a young lady, girl, woman who I grew up with. We went to school together. We were friends uh, all through school. She watches online a lot of times. Uh, Robert would be her father. Oh, no, sorry. I think her, yeah, her father. Uh, so we'll be praying for her father who's uh, in failing health. Uh, would, she would appreciate that. Is that it? Okay, Pastor Brown, previous pastor here for many, many, many years, uh, laid a great foundation for our church to move forward, and so we're, we'll, he's uh, sending his greetings and assurance of prayers for Ben. Okay. All right. Jim? Okay. Yeah, she broke her femur, so uh, they'd say that that's the most painful body in the bone to br- painful bone in the body to break. Uh, so pray for Donna. Um, Aunt Sheila uh, is having surgery coming up, and so we want to pray for her. Uh, we've been praying for her and Bud. Things are going well except for the upcoming surgery. Actually, for both of them. or She had hers. Bud is going to have his uh, coming up here soon, so pray for them. Let's see. Mark, what, do you still have that microphone? 
Would you like to pray for our online folks? That's Kitty, Jenny, Bobby, Joe, uh, Pastor Brown, um, the Fitzhughes, and Jenkins. Jackie Jenkins' dad. Grace Heavenly Father, we come before you and we are just thankful for the opportunity that we have to come before you in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the ability that you've given us and the avenue that you've given us to be available for people online to watch our services, something that we probably didn't think was an option a year ago. But Lord, through your wisdom and sovereignty, that's where we find ourselves today, and we're so thankful that we have that opportunity. Lord, this morning we just pray for those who uh, watch regularly or even periodically our services. Lord, and we just pray for all of those that watch, um, and just pray that through the preaching of your word that they can draw closer to you, that they can come to know you better. And Lord, we pray that um, in the future, those that are watching online will be able to to join us in person. Um, but until then, we just thank you once again that that opportunity is there. Specifically today, we pray for Kitty. Um, she was able to worship with us for a while uh, and has now left us. So we just pray for her and her upcoming surgery, um, that you would just um, help that surgery to go well, be with the doctors as they... Uh, do what they need to do, give them wisdom, and just give uh, strength and courage to Kitty as she um, goes through the recovery process and uh, dealing with not being able to take the, the painkillers. So just pray that you would grant her um, strength to get through all that. Pray for uh, Bobby Joe also in the, the surgery that her daughter is going to have coming up. Just pray that you would um, be at work in that situation as well. We pray for Jackie um, and her father, Robert. Um, We don't know the details of her father's health, but we know that it is declining. So we just pray that um, you would be at work in their lives, that you would comfort all of them and uh, strengthen them um, where you can. We pray for um, Jim's uh, sister-in-law with her Uh, surgery she has coming up just pray that um, you would heal her quickly Um, we continue to pray for um, Sheila and Bud and um, the health needs that they have at this time just once again pray that you would lift them up and strengthen them Um, we pray for Mike and Wanda this morning and just pray that the issue they're having with their audio would be able to get sorted out so that they can Uh, join us and hear us online and where we just want them to know that we love them and we miss them and um, we are praying for them Um, so just pray that you would encourage them and also for for ben this morning um, just pray that you would um, help him through um, whatever's hurting with him and um, help them to figure out if there's anything seriously wrong and just pray that he's okay and can be back with us soon father we thank you for all that you do for us and how you love and care for us and how you pour out your love and grace and mercy on us each and every day in christ's name i pray amen amen thanks mark
Well, as you can tell from your bulletin and the, uh, the title of the message and uh, the screen that's going to come up here with the title screen, uh, we're going to be speaking about the wrath of God, okay? Um, this is a topic that a lot of people don't really like to talk about. Uh, in fact, even in Christendom, a lot of people don't like to talk about the wrath of God. There's many people who call themselves Christians that don't think that God, our God, is characterized by wrath. Um, when we first started out our series on the attributes of God, I knew we would eventually get to this particular attribute or characteristic of our God. And we've arrived there, okay? Um, and I, it's not that I'm afraid to talk about it or that I don't want to talk about it. It's just a, it's just a difficult topic to discuss. And we're going to say things this morning that people are probably going to disagree with. We might lose some online viewers over the content of our message this morning. Uh, because as we talk about the wrath of God, we have to figure out and we have to discover why God is going to pour his wrath out on people or on the nations. And, and so as we talk about some of those things, it makes us uncomfortable and it makes us uh, have to, it actually calls for us to take a stand, to take a stand for what is right, to take a stand for what is true, and to take a stand for what honors our great God. Um, so I thought about starting our time out, and I'm going to do it this way, um, asking you what you think about when somebody says, or mentions the wrath of God. What do you what what's what comes to your mind when you hear that statement or that phrase, the wrath of God? Cindy? Okay. Thanks, Cindy. God is always angry with sin, and his desire is to draw people back to himself. Is that a safe synopsis? Yeah. Thank you. Someone else? Justice? Sodom and Gomorrah. That's going to come up in our message. Justice back here as well. Okay. And it should. Kitty, it should scare us. Um, but there's a, there's a solution for it. And we're, gonna, we're not just going to talk about the wrath of God this morning. We're going to talk about what God has done to rectify or to reconcile that as well. Any others? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk about that as well. Redemptive wrath, if you will. Yeah. All right. Very good. So as we get started this morning, I, I mentioned already that this is a controversial 
topic. This is a controversial discussion about who our God is. Um, it's so controversial as I was preparing this message, a song kept coming to my mind. I'm not going to talk about the whole song, but we often sing this song. It's called In Christ Alone. Some people change the words of the song, In Christ Alone. I'm going to read to you the way Stuart Town and Keith Getty wrote it. It goes like this. The gift, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ, I live. So as we think about the wrath of God, let me say this. Um, we as a church family, Calvary Baptist Church of Preble, New York, We believe that our God is indeed a God of wrath, and his wrath is perfectly justified. It's not like the wrath of man that is so often characterized by sin. When we get mad, our characteristics often are displayed in a way that is not pleasing to God. Good thing I put my phone in my pocket, I would have probably fallen on the floor. But the wrath of man is often characterized by the sinfulness of man. That's not true of God's wrath. God's wrath is perfectly justified. God's wrath is perfectly handed out. It's it's perfectly poured out and it's done for a very specific reason. Um, So some will argue that our God is a God of love and grace and mercy. So how can he, or better yet, they would say he can't be a God of wrath. To that I would say, yes, God is a God of love and his love is perfect love. And yes, God is a God of grace. And his grace is amazing, and it allows us access to heaven with him for all of eternity. And yes, God is a God of mercy, and his mercy spares us from an eternity in hell separated from him forever. God's love is perfect, his grace is perfect, and his mercy is perfect. All these things are perfect, just as the wrath of God is perfect as well. I've referred before to a website called gotquestions.org. It makes this comment about the wrath of God. But there is vast difference between the wrath of God and the wrath of man. God's wrath is holy and always justified. Man's is never holy and rarely justified. When we think of wrath, we often think of anger. And in man, it's a reaction to a mistreatment, whether real or perceived. Man's wrath is often vengeful and can be characterized, you might like this, I was going to put a video up, but I didn't. It's perhaps characterized by the wicked witch of the east to Dorothy when she said, I'll get you, my pretty, and your little doggy too. That's kind of what man's wrath is all about. I'm going to get you. You did this to me and I'm going to pay you back. There's all kinds of talk about payback and and how that works out, what that looks like. God, on the other hand, he's always right and he's never wrong. God is a God of love. So those people who say that God is a God of love and he can't be a God of wrath, they fail to understand this. 
Stephen Lawson made a comment about the wrath of God. He said, because God is infinitely pure, because he hates sin and loves holiness, he cannot be neutral about sin. There is in God a settled, determined indignation against all that is unholy. There is divine wrath that by necessity must react to all those not conforming to the purity of his holiness. You see, because God is 100% pure and holy and just, he must react to that which is contrary to his nature. If we as believers want to be truly excited about the grace of God, we need to know and understand the wrath of God. If we want to be excited about the love of God and the mercy of God, we have to understand, we have to be able to, some degree, realize what the wrath of God is all about. A study on the wrath of God is an integral part of the holiness of God. Knowing about the wrath of God helps us to cherish the grace, the love, and the mercy of God. Here's another thought from Stephen Lawson about the wrath of God. I really like this. He says, The preaching of divine wrath serves as a black velvet backdrop that causes the diamond of God's grace to shine brighter than 10,000 suns. It is upon the dark canvas of divine wrath that the splendor of his saving grace most fully radiates. Preaching the wrath of God most brilliantly showcases his gracious mercy towards sinners. Wow. How many of you gentlemen have ever gone into a jewelry store to buy your wife a diamond? Perhaps you've only bought one in your life. Um, But have you gone in to buy? It's not something you buy online, okay? Um, You buy it in the store. And why do you go to the store to buy a diamond? Because it's pretty. That's probably what she was going to say. Because you go into the store because they're going to display that diamond for you. What do they display the diamond on? Velvet. And it's usually what color? Black. Okay? And why is it that way? Because when they, and they also, there's probably a thousand lights in jewelry stores hanging overhead. And so when they shine all those lights down into that diamond, it catches all of the light and it begins to refract it into many different places. And it's all made so much more brilliant by that black diamond, by that black velvet that the diamond is sitting on. You know, when you look at a diamond ring in the window of a jewelry store, it's usually on those little stands that are made out of black velvet, or at least they're covered with black velvet because they want you to see all of the brilliant idiosyncrasies of that diamond. It makes you say, that's the one. That's the one that I want because of the way it caught your eye. That's the way the wrath of God is. If we don't understand what the wrath of God is, we cannot really appreciate the love and the mercy and the grace and all these other awesome characteristic traits that we've been talking about our great God. I've already shared this with you this morning, that, um, but I'm going to share it again. Sometimes as a pastor, the message you know you have to preach is not easy. And that's the case this morning. So as we work our way through this message, um, if I seem to be stumbling around, it's just I'm trying to say things the right way. Not that I 
don't mind, I mean, it's not my goal to offend people, but I wouldn't be the first time if I've said something that has offended somebody. But my goal is to clearly and accurately preach it from the Word of God. So we leave here this morning understanding that, yes, God is a God of wrath, but in His wrath, we really understand and we see and we appreciate His love and His mercy and His grace so much better. Some have hinted at the idea that the grace or the wrath of God is unchristian. Even in the Christian community, people don't want to talk about this attribute. But I got to tell you this, if we're going to let the God, the word of God be true, then we will hear what God has to say to us this morning from the pages of his word. The wrath of God can be seen in both the Old and the New Testament. And the verses that we're going to read this morning will remind us of the fact that God hates sin... And because he hates sin, he must deal with it and with those who choose to live in sin and reject the relational forgiveness that comes from his great mercy and grace and love. So, with that being said, we're going to crack God's word this morning. We're going to look at several verses that talk about the wrath of God, and then we're going to break it down. And don't get too bent out of shape when you look at the notes, even though there's seven points, uh, there's no sub points, okay? So we're just going to really kind of have a conversation about the wrath of God this morning. But we need to start off with some Bible verses. Uh, So if you're feeling comfortable to read about the wrath of God, we encourage you to do that. Step up to the microphone and read loudly and clearly from the words that are on the screen. Numbers chapter 25, verse 3 is the first one. The anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. You see, this word anger comes from the Hebrew word that means nostril. Hmm. Interesting, huh? Or more, perhaps more precisely, to flare the nostrils. You ever watch a bullfight or where the conquistador is up there and he's toro, 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 and he's trying to get the bull to come charging after him? What does the bull do before he makes his run at the red towel? He stomps, he paws the ground, and he starts to... And his nostrils get really big. And he takes off running. That's the idea. With the flaring of the nostrils is almost always a demonstration of someone's anger or wrath that is about ready to be dumped out on somebody. This word here in numbers, it means to burn with fury. Exodus chapter 32, verse 10. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may boil hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Okay, thank you, Chloe. This is the golden calf incident soon after God had delivered Israel from Egypt and the Red Sea. They get out into the wilderness, and all of a sudden, for some, can I use the word stupid? For some stupid reason, the children of Israel decide to make a golden calf. And if that weren't bad enough, they they make this calf and they declare that this calf is the God that brought them out of Egypt. The God that parted the Red Sea so they could cross on dry ground. Wow, no wonder God was ticked off. 
you got to remember the plagues that God poured out on the nation of Israel to prepare them to release the, sorry, the, the nation of Egypt to release them from that land. You have to remember that God had, had caused the Egyptians to plunder themselves by giving the Israelites all kinds of things that you would take in a plundering situation if they had gone to war. And then they get to the Red Sea and all of a sudden there's no place to go. And so they cry out to God, the God of heaven, and God opens up the Red Sea, and they cross on dry ground, and then Egypt gets in the middle, and God closes up the sea and kills all of Pharaoh's army. And now, the Israelites who have witnessed this, who have been actively involved in the deliverance of God from the the land of Egypt and the Red Sea, give credit to a pagan God that they made. How awful. God is upset. In fact, he says to Moses, let me be so that my wrath may burn hot against them. God was not impressed with the Israelites at that moment in time. God's wrath here was such that he was about to completely destroy, to literally wipe out the nation of Israel and start afresh with Moses. Are we kind of getting the idea that the wrath of God is not something to be taken lightly? Zechariah chapter 1, verse 15. This is coming from the ESV this morning. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 15. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. You catch that? It says he was exceedingly angry. This is the idea of bitter anger. This is the kind of anger that comes when people fail or refuse to carry out their agreed upon responsibilities. Can I tell you there's certain things that make me upset? <laughs> My wife laughs at that. She knows what I'm going to say. Okay, let me set the background a little bit. When you... When you get your driver's license, you have studied the manual, right? And they tell you what these little arrows that are on the road mean. They tell you what the signs that you see as you drive by them mean. You know, the the ones that say like one way? You know what I really hate is to go into the Walmart parking lot that is well-labeled with arrows telling you what way to drive. And even if you imply a little bit of common sense, you have to turn your car all kinds of crazy ways to get into when you drive the wrong way to a parking spot. When people are coming toward me and I'm in the right way going away, going towards the store and they drive the wrong direction... You have to get over so they can get by you. But in getting over, I always go, like, what are you doing? First of all, it wasn't easy to get out of your parking space to turn the wrong way to go down the road, the the driveway. That's the kind of bitter anger that we're talking about here. I've been able to control it. I haven't, uh, re- I haven't gotten a fight with anybody because of it. But boy, I'll tell you what. 
It upsets me. It perturbs me. I don't like it. Yeah, and then they look at you as if it's your fault that, that there's no room for them to drive the wrong way down the road. I'm like, come on. How is it that difficult? This is the kind of anger that Pharaoh expressed toward his baker because he did not properly carry out the duties of the office of Pharaoh. What happened to the baker? He got his head chopped off. There was great anger expressed because he didn't do what he was supposed to do. God has that kind of anger when he tells us clearly in the pages of Scripture. He has revealed it so clearly to mankind what they must do to be reconciled to him. And they say, so what? I don't care. It doesn't interest me. Go tell somebody else. God's not happy when people willingly disregard his word. Nahum chapter 1 verses 2 3 and then verse 6. So there's three slides for this, Ryan. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. So here we see the prophet Nahum telling us that the Lord is avenging and wrathful. He keeps or he reserves his wrath for his enemies. And verse 6 reminds us of how intense and how powerful the wrath of the one true God really is. He pours out his, the fierceness of his anger. It's like fire and it's like rocks that are thrown down by him. They're just falling everywhere. Okay, Ezekiel chapter 25 verse 17 again from the ESV. Ezekiel chapter 25 verse 17. And I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. Okay, so here we're seeing the prophet talk about the Philistines. You know, that hated enemy of the Israelites. The one who seemed to always be after Israel, always plaguing them. Here God says that, His wrath will prove to the Philistines who he really is. He's the one who will carry out his wrath on those who oppose him and who act against his chosen people. You don't want to be the recipient of this God who will pour out his wrath. Now we could go on in the Old Testament and talk again and again from the Jewish scriptures about the wrath of God. But let's move into the New Testament. We're going to find ourselves in a very familiar passage of scripture this morning. John chapter 3. Okay, John chapter 3, but later on in the chapter we read from verse 36. So somebody do that for us. John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see, God wants to bless individuals with everlasting life. 
if they believe on Jesus Christ, his son. But for those who refuse to believe in the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary, what does John say? John says, the wrath of God abides on them. This is John the Baptist talking. He's declaring the greatness of Jesus. And he wants us to understand, if you don't believe in this Messiah, if you don't believe in this one who is going to come after me, then God's wrath will be poured out upon you. And it's not just a short-term wrath. It's like the everlasting life for those who believe in the work. This is everlasting wrath for all time and eternity. Those who do not believe the wrath of God, it's already abiding on them. You understand that? This is not something new that's going to happen. Oh, flip a switch. They are already under the wrath of God. They will receive the just recompense for their unbelief. But God has made it possible so that you don't have to endure or encounter the wrath of God. Those who do not believe will be the recipients and continue to be the recipients of the wrath of God. It's only going to get worse. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for these things are the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Okay, so here in the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians, Paul is calling believers to live differently than the world. We are called to be imitators of God and to not live like the world lives. Those who are of the world are not imitators of God. And as a result of failing or refusing to be imitators of God, they will be the recipients of the wrath of God. Romans chapter 2, verse 5, the last one for us this morning. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see, those who refuse to repent will know the wrath of God. As we read this verse, it's evident that God is storing his wrath up. Picture, if you will, a dam that holds or stores the water for when it's needed. Every year when we lived in Cape Town, we had to monitor the the dams around the Cape to see, are we going to face water restrictions? Uh, You remember a couple of years ago, we were actually praying for South Africa because they were going to hit day zero, where they were going to run out of water because the dams were empty. and They weren't getting rain during the rainy seasons and during the winter. And there was a great concern that we would run out of water. That would be awful, wouldn't it? To run out of water. And, And some believe that because God is a God of love, he doesn't have any wrath to pour out on the nations. But you know what? God's wrath will not run out. In fact, God is storing up his wrath. The ungodly will be the recipients of his wrath that has been stored up. And know this, there will be no shortage of that wrath that is waiting to be poured out. And again, we could go to more verses from the New Testament, from the Christian scriptures, if you will. I just wanted you to understand, though, that this concept of God's wrath is not reserved for, is not, it's not held back. God is indeed a God of wrath. 
If you say that he's not, then what do you do with all the portions of Scripture that declare that he is indeed a God of wrath? From this brief survey, we can see that it's not something that we've made up. It's not something that we take lightly. And for those that refuse to respond to the revelation of God and enter into a God-honoring relationship with the one true God, they will receive this wrath. So as we continue our study this morning on the wrath of God, we're going to look at seven categories of the wrath of God. You guys, when you were talking about the wrath of God, you mentioned some of them. We'll put a name to those categories about the wrath of God. And as I said, don't fret. Even though there's seven points to the message, we won't be here all morning and all afternoon, okay? But if we want to have a better understanding of the wrath of God, we need to think about each one of these categories. First of all, We're going to take a look at the book of Romans. So uh, Romans chapter 1, if you have your copy of the scriptures, open it to uh, that amazing treaty on our salvation, the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 18. Romans 1, 18, Paul writes this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What we have here is the abiding wrath of God. And we're jumping right into the controversy of the wrath of God. The idea of a God characterized by wrath as part of his nature goes contrary to the desires of fallen man. Fallen man don't want to see God as a God of wrath. Oh, that's okay. He'll just he'll let us get away with it. He'll excuse it. He he'll, he'll pretend that it didn't happen. Well, he doesn't pretend that sin doesn't happen. Sin happens. Sin happened in the garden. Sin plunged all of mankind into a separation from God. And God has a way to deal with that. But man in his sinfulness and in his pride and in his arrogance, they don't want to deal with it God's way. They want to deal with it their own way, which simply excuses it away. Even in Christendom, people struggle to accept the concept of a wrathful God. And as I was preparing this message, I came across an article um, about the 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 Presbyterian Church's new hymn book as of 2013. This quote shows the divide in Christianity. Last week, August 13th, 2013, last week Christianity Today reported on the Presbyterian Church USA's decision to exclude the modern hymn in Christ alone from their hymnal. The decision came down to one line. We've referred to it already. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The PCUSA had hoped to change the line to read, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. This was done to be in keeping with their church's doctrinal statement on atonement. Now, Believe it or not, there are those in the Christian community that believe that Jesus' death on the cross was not necessary to take our place and satisfy the, God's, satisfy the demands of God for a, substitution, a substitutionary atonement. You shake your head. If, if Jesus didn't have to die on the cross as our substitute, why did he have to die? 
Why would God put his son to death on the cross if there wasn't a need for a substitute for mankind? That is the reason Jesus went to the cross and and hung on that cross and cried out those words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the wrath of God was poured out on his son on that cross. The truth is, some think it's easier to say that the wrath of God isn't wrathful, that God isn't a God of wrath, than to defend his wrath from the pages of Scripture. Because they only want to see a God of love. You have to see both sides of who our God is. This word for wrath is the Greek word orge which means God's utter abhorrence to sin, but a longing mixed in with grief for those who live in sin. Because of God's holiness, he hates sin and must deal with it according to his nature. But he also loves those in sin and has provided everything necessary for them to be delivered from their sin. See, God hates sin, but he doesn't hate the sinner. And I know that sometimes sounds like a trite saying, But it is very true. And he can't just excuse away your sin either. It has to be dealt with. Otherwise, he would be inconsistent with his nature. We also see in Scripture the annihilative wrath of God. Yes, I did make some of these words up, I think. You see in there the word annihilation, though, or annihil. God is going to annihilate certain people. In fact, he has. Another aspect of the wrath of God that cannot be denied is that there are times in history when God destroyed or wiped out portions of humanity. The first time we see this is in Genesis chapter 6 where God's assessment on humanity was, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was God's assessment in Genesis chapter 6. Man is wicked. And what happened? There's a a verse that says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah was a righteous man according to the book of Hebrews. And Noah feared God. And so God called Noah to be the, the sole survivor, he and his family, of the flood. And what was the flood? The flood was when God poured out his wrath upon his creation and wiped out everyone. That is the wrath of God. Why? Because of the sinfulness of man. And man refused to repent. How do we know that? Because Noah preached. Noah preached day in and day out. They mocked him. They scorned him. They told him he was a fool. He didn't know what he was talking about. A flood? What is that? Oh, it's when water falls from the sky. Noah, come on. Water falling from the sky? They'd never seen it before. God judged the nation at that time. We also see it in Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis chapter 19, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because of their wickedness. Because of their sinfulness. Because of their improper sexual conduct. Oh yes, it's a choice. 
improper sexual behavior is a choice. But God doesn't excuse it. He hates it. So God destroyed the two cities. The only people that survived were Lot and his two daughters. Even Lot's wife didn't survive because she looked back, disobeying the direct command of God. We see again in the book of Exodus when God calls his children, the Israelites, out of Egypt. He judged the Egyptians. Why? Because they refused to accept and believe in the one true God. And God wiped out the, Egyptian, the entire Egyptian army along with Pharaoh by drowning them in the Red Sea. There's many times in Scripture where the Lord used droughts and famines to judge nations. Jewish and Gentile people alike, those that refuse to listen to him and follow his plan and his will. Read through the Minor Prophets someday and see the wrath of God that were poured out on both Israel and the Jew, and the, the nations the heathen nations around them why because they refused to listen to the one true God there's also what we would call the anticipated wrath of God this is the the wrath that results from consequences or it's well deserved this anticipated wrath of God. And here we have the concept of the principle of sowing and reaping. When sinners sow seeds of wickedness, there will be a reaping of those seeds that have been sown. We see this both in the Old and the New Testaments. In, in the New Testament, in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, we read, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own spirit, will, his own flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit, the Holy Spirit, will receive from the spirit eternal life. And then over in the book of Hosea, what a story that book is, the book of Hosea. We won't get into the details, but in Hosea chapter 8, verse 7, Hosea writes this, For they sow the wind, and they will reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it, were, if it were to yield, strangers would devour it. In other words, God is pouring out his wrath on those who live in disobedience. This shouldn't come as a surprise to us, this idea of the, the, the law of sowing and reaping. It's getting that time, although you can't tell now because the ground is again covered in snow, but it's getting that time where we're going to start planting seeds to go into our gardens. If you're a gardener, um, in fact, if my grandpa was still alive, he'd already have his seeds planted. His tomato plants would probably be about this tall already. Um, last year that kind of happened with me and then they all kind of died just before we put them in the ground. So we're starting, a, we're starting earlier than we did the first year, but a little bit later than last year. And we're going to hopefully have nice seeds to put, actually nice plants to put in our garden. But you know what? The strange thing is when I put a tomato seed in the planting cup and fill it with dirt, tomatoes grow. How's that? They don't produce green beans. They don't produce peppers. If I put tomato seeds in the dirt, tomato plants are going to grow. They're going to be these, well, this year they're going to be kind of like, um, uh, I don't think they're beefsteak, but they're supposed to be big tomatoes. Red, juicy tomatoes. It's not making my mouth water, but is it making yours? You see, I'm going to use most of them to make sauce. 
That'll make your mouth water. But what, why do I get tomatoes from tomato seeds? Because that's the way God ordained it to happen. When I put carrot seeds in the ground and these little things start to sprout up, what is it going to be? Carrots. It's the law of sowing and reaping. And what Paul and Hosea want us to understand is when we sow seeds, if they're seeds of love and kindness and grace, then we're going to reap that. But if we sow seeds of hatred and bitterness and discontent, what are we going to reap? Those very things. Has to happen. You see, you and I, we want to plant those kinds of things that demonstrate we are the sons and the daughters of the one true God. We want to sow seeds of obedience. We want to sow seeds of a God-honoring lifestyle so we will enjoy the harvest of those things. But the world can't sow those seeds because they are contrary to the things of God until they come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. We'll move on to the abandonment wrath of God. This is kind of the wrath of God that results in God abandoning or turning people over to the result of their sins. You see, God has given his message. He's given truth. He's given knowledge. He's given the gospel that leads to salvation only to be rejected time and time again. What is the result of this repeated rejection? Well, Take a look at Romans chapter 1 with me again. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. We're going to read verses 24 through 28. Romans chapter 1. Maybe you're still there. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 28. It says, Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanging the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise, also men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which, they, which are not fitting. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God for those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Wow. Does that sound like a commentary of 2021? Is that not where we are as a world, as a nation, as a, as a people group? What does God say he will do? Well, in verse 24, we see these words. Therefore, God gave them up. In verse 26, we see God gave them up. Again, in verse 28, we read God gave them up. You see, the result of man choosing to reject God and his ways 
is evident. God gives them up to the folly of their sinfulness. The end result is seen in chapter 2, verse 5, where Paul writes, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What's going to happen? They will be abandoned by God. When God abandons someone, that means that God ceases to bring influences to the gospel and to repentance into their lives We can see this in our world all around us today, can't we? And it's sad to say some in the Christian realm have even bought into reinterpreting God's word to call sin a choice or just a different way to do life. When in reality, it brings about the abandonment of God. Not just for the individual, but in many cases, it's true of an entire nation as well. We need to pray for those who are in jeopardy of being turned over by God to their own choices and the results of those choices. We need need to be praying for people to understand. When you condone sin and when you say it's okay, it ends up with the abandonment of God in your life. Well, keep moving because time keeps moving. I shouldn't have had you turn the clock back. Or ahead. I still would have lots more time. Anyway, the apocalyptic wrath of God. This is the wrath of the last days prior to the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. The second advent or the millennial kingdom. We're going to talk about the wrath of God. John wants us to see it in Revelation chapter 19. John here in Revelation 19 describes the time just before the return of Jesus. And in verse 15 of Revelation chapter 19, John writes this. From his mouth, whose mouth? Jesus' mouth. This is not made up. This is not figurative. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, just before Jesus comes to set up his kingdom on earth, the wrath of God will be poured out on the nations in judgment for refusing to accept and follow the one true God. The blessing for you and I, those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we will already be in heaven when this wrath is going to be poured out on the earth. You don't want to be here. John MacArthur says the wrath of God is one of, the, one of the first and most important things that we should explain to unbelievers so they understand what they, what they are in for and what God will deliver them from. The apocalyptic wrath of God. And then there's sadly the abiding wrath of God. Now generally when we think of the abiding nature of God, it brings us hope and comfort, does it not? However, this is not the abiding that John talks about in John 15. You know that passage in John 15 where where God says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done to you. By this, 
the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. We want to abide in Christ. We want that relationship to be so vibrant, so, so alive, that others will see that we are indeed the children of God, followers of Jesus Christ. But when we talk about the abiding wrath of God, it is instead not that, not that joyful, comforting thought of abiding in Christ, but it is eternal condemnation where a person will be sentenced to eternal fire, eternal torment, eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is where God will say, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. This is where one will be cast into the lake of fire. Now, have you ever thought about the imagery of the lake of fire? I mean, this hit me as I was, as I was preparing for this message. What is the imagery of the lake of fire. I'm not saying that the lake of fire is not real, but what is God trying to say to us when he calls it the lake of fire? Lawson describes it this way. He says, the terrifying imagery of drowning, yet never drowning, yet ever drowning in a lake of fire. Some have said the worst way to die is to drown. But can you imagine drowning and never drowning, yet forever drowning. It's awful. It's horrible. And not in water, but in the lake of fire. Wow. Those words have such dire consequences. Those words when Jesus will say, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Should be our hope and prayer that no one that we know will hear those words that God speaks. So you may be wondering, Pastor, why is all this really necessary? Well, because we need to know and we need to be reminded about the wrath of God to fully appreciate our closing thoughts this morning. It is what that black velvet backdrop is all about. It's what makes the grace and the love and the mercy of God so amazing as we think about the atoning work of God. Or, as Bill mentioned, the redemptive wrath of God. You see, the atoning work involves the wrath of God. All of mankind would have to face the wrath of God that we have thought about and talked about and discussed this morning if it weren't for the sacrificial work of Christ on Calvary's tree. Because Jesus went to the cross, and on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the love of Christ, I can stand. You see, as Jesus hung on that wretched tree, God poured his wrath out on his son for you and for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then in 1 John chapter 4, ver, uh, chapter 4, he writes, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Do you think anybody's going to be asking, where's the fairness in that? Do you think people are going to stand up and say, but wait a minute, that wasn't fair? No. 
They're going to laugh at it. They're going to scorn it. But you know what? When Jesus hung on that cross, he took your sins and he took my sins upon himself. He paid the penalty for our sin. He became our substitute at the cross. God's justice was satisfied. God's love was fulfilled. That's why Jesus, with his dying words, could say, It was finished. It, is, it has been accomplished. That's why he bowed his head and he died. God's wrath, completely and totally satisfied by Christ and his work on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for taking God's wrath upon yourself because we couldn't take that wrath. would have consumed us. But God in his mercy sent his son to be the propitiation for my sins. You know what that word propitiation means? It means to be that which satisfies the just wrath of another. I was a sinner. You were a sinner. Paul's pretty clear in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 6. What, what do we deserve because of our sin? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, God's wrath, completely satisfied. Would you say with me this morning, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing the wrath that I deserved. The wrath of God completely justified because of his holiness. The wrath of God, completely satisfied because he commended his love toward us through his Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning reminded of who you are. You are indeed a God of wrath. We must not forget to talk about that. We must not choose to refuse to talk about it. We must understand it because without understanding it, we don't understand your love and your grace and your mercy. We can't appreciate it. But Father, you are amazing. You're glorious. You're awesome. And when we think of all the benefits, all the blessings that are ours because we have trusted Christ as our Savior, help us to place at the top of those benefits the very fact that you will not pour your wrath out upon us. Thank you so much for your love, your grace, and being spared from wrath. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the wrath of God awaits you. I don't want that for you. I don't think you want that for yourself. So let's have a conversation this morning about what that means. If you're unsure, we can help you with that as well. Mark's going to come and lead us in the closing song. Jesus, draw me close. 
because we don't fear his wrath, 